the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will come about in Judah, and it will come about in that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples who lift it, and they will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Our Father, you have written in your word, there is coming a day when all the various peoples on this planet will go against your people, Israel. And what a change we've witnessed just in the last week. We think of the Holocaust and and a limited number of nations that went against Israel, with many being silent. But we've witnessed across the lands, nation after nation, raising their fist against the people of Israel. But you promise that you will not allow their foot to slip, that you who keeps Israel will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. And we're grateful for that. We pray for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that you would give him wisdom. We know that you hate evil. We think of the Amalekites who killed defenseless children and women. And you did not forget. We think of the Assyrians who bragged about the evil they had done. And you did not forget, and you raised up the prophet Nahum to preach against them. You see what is happening here, and we lift this people up to you. Thank you that your plans will ultimately be fulfilled through this nation. We come to you this morning. We ask that you'd open our hearts and minds to the truth that we find in this passage. Please, by your spirit, help us to understand it. I pray that you would come and fill me and anoint me and use me, that together we might rightly divide the word of truth. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you're new to the Bible, it's easy to find. Just find the first page of the New Testament, Matthew, and turn back a few pages, and you'll be in Malachi chapter 2, where we're going to examine today. Malachi delivers a final message, so to speak, to the people of Israel before there's 400 years of silence when there's no prophet in Israel. And he came during a dark, dark, evil day. And it's interesting because the people were complacent, they were apathetic, and the scripture parallels the second coming of Christ to his first coming. Just as Jesus came into a dark world, he will return into a dark world. And like all the prophets of Israel, they were the voice of Israel's conscience. They came to comfort the afflicted, and they came to afflict the comfortable. And Malachi, you see, doing both with an accent, I suppose, on the latter. And I find it interesting that many of the problems that the people of Israel faced in Malachi's day, we face in our day. And this morning, he addresses the problem of divorce. Now, I have several groups of people in mind in giving this message. First, I want to speak to every teenager who's here. I want you to listen carefully. I want you to sit on the edge of your seat. 
because so many today are products of broken families and typically broken children produce broken families in turn. But that does not have to be. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Your generation can be different from the one that we are witnessing. According to an extensive study done last year by Forbes, now 51% of all first marriages end in divorce, 67% of second marriages end in divorce, and 73% of third marriages end in divorce. And with each case, the number one cause is infidelity. And so it's not surprising that this same study showed that couples who lived together before they were married had a 63% more likely chance of having a divorce. Why? Because walking down the aisle and saying, I do, I will, does not change your character. You bring down the aisle who you are. Now, God can change your character as you grow in Christ. But if you live the life of a profligate before you get married... Walking down the aisle does not change anything. And so I want us this morning to pay close attention because sadly half now, half of all American children are being raised in a single family home. And if you don't think that that could happen to you, listen to Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So I want every teenager to listen carefully because the contemporary models are not all that great. But you can have a great home, and as your pastor, I don't want you to become a statistic. A hundred years ago, when the Judeo-Christian ethic was still permeating our culture, only one in a hundred marriages ended in divorce. We've gone from one in a hundred to this Forbes study, 51 in a hundred, another study, 53 out of a hundred. And so we have a new generation at risk. And God's ideal for marriage is one man, one woman, until death severs the relationship. And I want to speak to every single person who's never been married, and it might be that God wants you to be single your whole life. And God calls some people to be single so that they can give undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom. And you shouldn't try to marry off someone that God has called to be single. But if you are single, generally speaking, God's desire is for people to get married. And so I want you to ponder, to pray, to take good notes, and to do your best to apply these truths this morning. The second group of people I have in mind this morning are those of you who have fantastic marriages. Because sooner or later, whether you want to be or not, someone is going to come to you who is having trouble in their marriage, and they're going to come to you for counseling. And you want to make sure that your advice is sound and solid. Because as a pastor, I am often undoing the bad counsel of Christian people. And I don't think we really heed and take seriously the command that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 19. Let me read it to you. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, these commandments include what he says about divorce. And in the next paragraph, he's going to address specifically that very issue. While heaven is a marvelous place for all who will go, it will not be the same for everyone who goes. 
Some will be called least in the kingdom of heaven because of rotten counsel they gave. They thought they were giving good counsel, but they were speaking their own mind and not what God had revealed in Scripture. And Christians tend to be very quick to give advice, especially if they have failed. And they will often speak out of their experience. But third, I want to speak to those of you this morning who have been divorced. And I recognize that I cannot preach on this subject without bringing up some painful memories. And I hurt when you hurt, but there is healing. And I want you, too, to make sure that you are now experiencing God's best and that you're not rationalizing what you've done. And I realize there are people who are divorced against their will. They have no intention of wanting to be dumped by their partner. But nonetheless, their partner dumped them. So I'm not here to hammer you with some clobber to put you on some guilt trip. But I also recognize that if you broke your vow and you're the one who is responsible for the divorce, if you do not deal with it biblically by your bad example, by your bad counsel, you will actually help to hurt other marriages. We need to somehow break this divorce cycle in America. And should the Lord tarry, this nation is on a pathway of self-destruction because a nation is only as strong as its family. Now, many of you are joining us for the first time, so let me give you the broad context of the prophet Malachi, and then we'll zoom in on the immediate context. If you read and reread a book of the Bible, you can see how it divides. It's not always according to chapter divisions. In fact, in my Hebrew Bible, there's only three chapters to Malachi. It has the same content, but they divide it into three chapters. Here in chapter one, which was the opening message, the first five verses, we discovered a declaration of God's love. The people were basically questioning whether God really cared for them. And so God reminds the people of God's care for them in the past. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We saw that that idiom was not an emotional hate that God had against Esau, but it was a choice. And God saw something in Jacob that he didn't see in Esau. And so from Jacob's descendants, he made that nation the nation from which the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. And the second section that began in chapter 1 and verse 6 and goes all the way through 3.15, the focus concerns the disloyalty in God's people. And we saw that it was a picture of God's complaint in the present. And if you've been with us, we have already underscored that there are six major sins that he deals with. He dealt with the first one, which really becomes the underlying theme in the introduction about their questioning, doubting God's love. And then in the second section, he'll deal with five more sins. And of course, they showed that they had lost their respect for God, for God's name, that they were in essence taking God's name in vain by the kind of worship that they were offering him, that they showed more respect for their governor, for an earthly king, for an earthly leader, than they did for the king of the universe. And so as Isaiah states, as the priest goes, so go the people. And so while God indicts the priests with a, a sin of poor leadership, which is a reason why the New Testament warns people to clamor for a leadership position in the New Covenant Church, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. 
not to mention that those who lead the church have a greater accountability, as Hebrews 13 underscores, as they give an account for the souls of those whom you are shepherding. But while he indicts the leaders, he still deals with the people because no one can use bad leadership in a church or at this time within the nation of Israel, the priests who were to teach the people as an excuse for their own disobedience. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so God indicts the people in our passage this morning for dealing treacherously with their spouses. They were taking their companions and they were divorcing them. And then when you come to the third section, Malachi focuses on the deliverance by God's servants. And he's looking down to the corridors of time to God's coming in the future. And he assures the people that there's coming a day when God will separate the wicked from the righteous, that God has a book of remembrance, and that it pays to serve the Lord, and he will reward the faithfulness of his people who walk with him. And also in this final section, he keys off of the truth that uh, God is going to send two deliverers. First, Elijah the prophet. Jesus spoke of John the Baptist as a type of Elijah, but he made it crystal clear that Elijah was coming back. That's why every Jew at a Passover meal sets a plate for Elijah the prophet because they believe what Malachi wrote. Jesus affirmed that. And he's going to come back during the time of the great tribulation. We'll study that during the great and terrible day of the Lord. But he will also send back a second time the Messiah. In the New Testament, it's the word Christ. Those are equal terms if you're a new Christian. God will send back the Christ. Someone said to me recently, why do you make these simple-minded points? Because we have new Christians here every week. And if you can't define terms for new believers, it shows how calloused and out of touch you are. You want to be engaged in bringing people to the kingdom. And the questions they ask are not stupid questions. There are no stupid questions. Every question is important. But God will ultimately send the Messiah who will restore all things. And so that's where we are at. He's not going to leave the people in despair, but he's ultimately going to make every wrong right. Let's pick it up here in chapter 2 and verse 10. If you have a Bible, follow along. If you don't own one, come tonight, if you will, to meet the pastor. We'd love to be able to give you one. He begins, do we not all have one father? Is it not one God who has created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing, because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? 
Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. A journal article in a study of 60 divorced couples caught my attention recently. The article opened with these words. The landscape is littered with victims of the divorce epidemic. Ex-wives are raising their children alone. Former husbands are trying to start new lives and still be good fathers to their children, and they see that they see only on specified days. And the children themselves are often torn apart between two warring parents. We're living in the midst of a national tragedy, the tragedy of throwaway marriages, which as you can see on your note-taking outline, if you're live streaming, you can download it. That's the topic this morning. Vance Havner used to always say, people get married looking for an ideal, and then that ideal turns into an ordeal, before long, they start looking for a new deal. And so divorce, sadly, has become an American way of life. And if it doesn't work out, we think we can just bail out. And some bail out, and they go against the very commitment and covenant that they promised God at some marriage altar. But God intends for our marriages to be for keeps. And I don't know how dark your marriage is or how desperate it may be, but there's hope that God can help you and redeem you and save you and heal your marriage. We hear the phrase often said that marriages are made in heaven, and that's true in the sense that it is God who joins two people. I've never married anyone, though I've performed, I guess, hundreds of marriages, but I've never married anyone. It is God who joins together two people. What God has joined, Jesus spoke of. And so marriage is made in heaven, but it is to be worked out on earth with unconditional love and with a commitment to the Spirit of God to help us as his people. And so Malachi faced three problems in his day that we face in our day. And he wants us to see these problems. He wants us to understand these problems so that potentially we can avoid these problems. If you're using your note-taking outline, the first point there in your outline is the treachery of an unequal yoke. And let me just say, I'm encouraged to see so many of you taking notes. It tells me that you're serious about Scripture. It tells me that you don't want to be one of these people who give rotten, crummy advice. The one who gives bad advice, especially on this subject, will be called least in the kingdom of God. So he deals with the treachery of an unequal yoke. Now notice there's a series of questions here in verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Is it not one God who has created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Now please understand, Malachi is not teaching what liberal Protestant 19th century theology called the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man that there's some kind of universal salvation which is embraced in most mainline denominations in our day. Certainly in a creative sense, we are all related. We're all descendants of Adam. We all sinned in and with Adam. And every family here is an offspring of Shem, Ham, or Japheth that came off the ark. And so for this reason in Acts chapter 17, the Bible can say the whole human race is from one blood 
and that in a creative sense, we're all his children. But understand, he's not dealing with the creative fatherhood of God here in Malachi. He's dealing with God's covenant people. In the same way in the New Testament, most of the time, almost every time, with one exception as far as I know, God, when he speaks of children of God, he's speaking of those who've been born again. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even or those who believe in his name. And so we are spiritually related if we have God as our father. So the scripture doesn't teach we're all brothers and sisters. In fact, it says you're either in the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Jesus underscored you're either a child of God or you are of your father, the devil. And so by a second birth, Paul will say we were all made to drink of one spirit. And that's what unites us. That's what gives us a kinship and a love one for another. And so in very similar fashion here in verse 10, he's addressing the covenant community of Israel. He's addressing Old Testament believers. And God uses similar terminology in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. He refers to the nation of Israel as his firstborn. In Exodus 4, he said, let my son go that they may serve me. In Hosea 11, he says, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so why did he ask these three questions here in verse 10? Malachi first wants to remind them that God is their father. He wants to remind them that God birthed them. He formed them as a nation. We studied that in the introduction in the first five verses. And they are a distinct people. And these preachers across America who are teaching replacement theology, that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with Israel, they are in gross error. God has made an eternal commitment to the nation of Israel as the Jeremiah 31 underscores. As long as the sun and the moon and the stars are up in the heavens above, that's how long God says his commitment is to Israel. It doesn't mean that just because you're a Jew, you'll go to heaven. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But God's not finished with Israel. He is going to complete his program through Israel. What is happening today is not accidental. This small group of people, 12 and a half, 13 million people on the whole planet, 7.3 million who live in the land of Israel, are increasingly being hated by all the nations of the world. And God is going to culminate human history through this particular people. A small slice of land, the current land is no bigger than New Jersey. What God promised is much larger, and someday they will realize that because God made a promise concerning a land, a seed, and a blessing. But the land that they are on today is going to become a disputed piece of property, and all the nations ultimately, because they hate Israel, will come against Israel. But in the opening chapter, God said, I chose Israel. And just as he chose them to bring about the first coming, he will use them to bring about the second coming. The prophet Amos asked this question, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Why? Because as Proverbs 3 underscores, as the Old Testament repeatedly illustrates, as Hebrews 12 quoting Proverbs 3 underscores, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So God first asks here in verse 10, do we not all have one father? Yes, we do. Is it not one God who created us? 
And the answer to that is yes. He is our Father, and He created one special, unique nation. Well, if that's the case, then He asks, why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? To deal treacherously, it's a, it's a Hebrew word, bagad, and it means to betray a trust, to be unfaithful to a commitment, to undermine another person's position. You could paraphrase it. If God has made you one people, such that your brothers and sisters, then why do you deal so hatefully, so treacherously, so violently against one another, breaking the covenant that I made with your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That's the charge stated against the people. And so in verse 11, he explains how they did this. Notice, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. The problem is widespread, and so he uses, in verses 11 and 12, four overlapping terms. You should underline them or at least circle them in your Bible. In verse 11, Judah, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital, and so sometimes in Scripture, God will use the city of Jerusalem to represent the whole nation, kind of like we can use Washington, D.C. to represent these United States of America. Judah, Jerusalem, in, in Israel. And then in verse 12, he uses the word Yaakov, Jacob, whose name was changed at Yitzrael or Israel, because the whole nation had been faithless. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, the capital. How so, God? What do you mean? Well, let me explain it. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The daughter of a foreign god would refer to a pagan woman. A pagan woman who did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't necessarily wrong to marry a Gentile. Moses married a Canaanite. Joseph married an Egyptian. What was sinful and evil was to marry a Gentile who was an unbeliever, and typically the term Gentile was synonymous for an idolater. Jesus uses it that way when he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. Why? Because the average Gentile was a downright hardcore pagan. And so they had profaned God's sanctuary by marrying the daughter of a foreign woman. And God had specified and instructed very carefully that they were not to marry an unbeliever. Put out in the margin next to verse 11 a few verses. First, Leviticus 20, verse 26. Leviticus 20, verse 26. Let me read it to you. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. God called the nation to be separate from the surrounding pagan peoples. They were not to marry these unbelieving idolaters. He specifically prohibited the men from marrying an unbelieving wife. And unless a woman had been converted to Judaism, believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God said no. Put down this verse, Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. Let me read those two verses to you. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, speaking of the Gentiles. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled 
against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But they didn't heed that command. So when they finally come into the promised land, listen to what Judges 3, 5 through 8 says. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatham, king of Mesopotamia. God knew the profound influence an unbelieving woman could have on these men who were to lead the families. And God knew that in turn, the hearts of their children would be turned away. By the way, this same issue is echoed in the New Testament. Hold your finger here and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't lose Malachi. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and go to the 7th chapter. This problem of being married to an unbeliever still applies today. It's taught on both sides of the Bible. When you come to 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, concerning the things which you wrote me about, and so they wrote Paul a letter filled with questions, and so beginning in 7-1, almost all the way through chapter 16, he begins to tick off their questions one at a time. And so first he deals with the question, uh, at least we're going to pick it up, he's already dealt with singleness, but we're going to pick up two believers who are married together in a difficult marriage. Follow along verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, meaning This is not a subject that's unique to me. This is a subject that Jesus spoke about and addressed, and I'm going to tell you what he said. I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Then parenthetically, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And then he says, and that the husband is not to divorce his wife. Where did Jesus say that? He said it by what he taught on the subject of divorce and remarriage, that a relationship was only to be broken by death. He recognized the Apostle Paul that there were some marriages where the wife maybe felt the need to leave. Maybe that man was coming and beating her up black and blue or hurting the children, or maybe he's some serial adulterer and he's potentially bringing some sexually transmitted disease into the marriage bed. I know today people come up with all kinds of abuse. I have in air quotes. All kinds of abuse. Ah, I left. Emotional abuse. Really, that's a reason to leave. What about suffering unjustly, 1 Peter 3? But when the temple of the Holy Spirit is being challenged, there may be a reason to leave. But if you leave, what are your options? He's clear. The wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave... She must remain unmarried or go back to her husband. You can't leave him, then go find some new guy and get married again. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Lord taught. Then he addresses the issue of a mixed marriage that took place largely because, remember, he comes to Corinth. It's largely Gentile. He preaches the gospel. And maybe a husband got saved and the wife didn't, or the wife got saved and the husband didn't. So you had a mixed marriage. 
Look at verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning this is not an issue that Jesus addressed that you can find in the Gospels, but I am going to speak on it as his apostle. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Why not? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So this teaching about a mixed marriage is consistent with what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 6 about being unequally yoked. But he is clear, emphatically, without exception, a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be bound together. You could render it, don't be unequally yoked, the ESV puts it. Don't be unevenly yoked, the LEB renders it. Don't be mismatched. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. And that imagery comes from Deuteronomy 22, where God instructed Moses that you don't uh, hitch together two uh, different kinds of animals out of sensitivity for the animals. And God had compassion, as Proverbs 12.10 says, a righteous man does on his animal. You see somebody butchering an animal, being cruel and mean, you're looking at, according to Proverbs, a wicked man. In either case, he uses this imagery and he applies it to marriage. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? None, obviously. What harmony has Christ with Belial? We explored that word on Wednesday night if you were here. Belial is another term or a name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? What agreement, what accord, what concord has the Spirit of God in you with an unbeliever who's regeneratively dead? And so people reason all the time, well, listen, pastor, I married an unbeliever. I knew he was an unbeliever. But he became a Christian. You see, it was God's will for us to get married because God wanted me to use him to, to win him to Jesus. No, it was not God's immediate will. It might have been God's ultimate will. But if you were to obey Scripture, you would have waited until that person first was converted, and then you would have married. You say, but we have a wonderful, godly home. Thank God for his amazing grace. But do not do theology by experience. For every example you can pull out of someone who was saved and willfully married a lost person, I can show you a hundred examples where it didn't have, happen. But we don't do theology by experience. We submit our experience to the will and the revelation of Scripture. Now, I know some of you got saved after you were married, and so you're in a mixed marriage. Some of you thought you were marrying a believer, only to find out he was an unbeliever, and so you know you're in a mixed marriage. But some of you willfully, volitionally chose to marry an unbeliever. Deal with it. Don't rationalize it. Don't say, well, it turned out for the better. Because then you're setting your children up for disaster to the third and fourth generation. And so this is important. And I often tell people, never marry, never date someone that you can't potentially marry. Why? Because you start dating some unbeliever thinking you're going to do, you know, evangelistic dating. 
look, if you can't pull it off on one date, then don't go back. And I would even caution that. I wouldn't certainly let my daughter date an unbeliever, even if she wanted to, she never wanted to. It didn't have to face that problem. But listen, the scripture doesn't teach evangelistic dating per se. Well, how long have you been going with this pagan? Oh, six months. I'm trying to win him to Jesus. You're wasting your time if he won't respond. You never date someone you can't marry. Why? Because you can fall in love with them. And then your emotions will kick into overdrive and they will rule your decision. The scripture teaches us that to marry an unbeliever is a tragedy and God is trying to keep us from tragedy. It creates spiritual disagreement. The prophet Amos asked in chapter three, can two walk together unless they are agreed? I mean, husbands and wives ought to be agreed on the most important truths. But what happens when a believer marries a non-Christian? The Christian says, honey, I don't think our children should watch that television show. You know, there's a new show for preschoolers. It's called We Baby Bears. I don't think they should watch that. They're they're teaching, you know, transgenderism, and they have a non-binary episode, and they're teaching little five- and six-year-olds to use preferred pronouns. The non-Christian says, well... It can't be that bad. Maybe it's not obviously for our kids, but it's for other kids. You know, some kids may be in the wrong body. Besides that, you can't shelter them from everything. You got to expose them to this at some point. The Christian says, it's the Lord's day. I want to go and gather with the people of God. The non-Christian says, it's my day off. I want to sleep in. The Christian says, I want to take a tithe of the increase and bring it to the work of the Lord. And the unsaved man says, we can't afford that. The Christian says, let's go to that church where the pastor actually teaches the Bible. And the unbeliever says, you don't want to go to that church. He doesn't even believe in evolution. That's a bad church. The Christian says, we have a problem in our home. We need to seek God. We need to get on our knees and ask him for help. And the non-Christian says, we can work this out on our own. You know, the scripture says God helps those who help themselves, right? Hmm. The Christian says, I want our children to be raised in the nurture and admonition and fear of the Lord. And the unbeliever says, the most important thing is that we get him a good education so he can pursue and be successful in life. And so there's this constant spiritual disagreement. Not only is there disagreement, there's spiritual decay. Many times when a believer marries an unbeliever, it's not the believer who brings the unbeliever up, but it's the unbeliever who brings the believer down to his level. For example, it's much harder if a Christian is married to a non-Christian even to come to church as much as you'd like to because they're not interested in participating. I mean, it's hard enough for two believers to get here on Sunday morning, right? We used to start on Saturday night and to get everything laid out and, you know, because we learned, what happened to your other shoe? I don't know. And you find it out in the backyard, you know. My wife was so organized that we started on Saturday night and it was important. Otherwise, by the time we got here, we would have maybe lost our sanctification and we would have really not. And look, and we wanted to come. We wanted to come. But if you're married to an unbeliever who doesn't want to come, There's all this decay. Teenagers, listen to me. Don't even think about marrying an unbeliever. And the place to find the right person is not in some singles website 
or in some bar room, but in the house of God where you can visibly see another person who's truly committed to Jesus Christ. And I can't think of a greater disaster than for a believer who has his highest priority and passion in his heart to serve the Lord Jesus. Now, marry someone who doesn't share that passion. And so the scripture is categorically clear. Never marry an unbeliever. Do not be bound together. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And God is trying to spare us from heartache and from turmoil. Now, keep reading here in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14. I hope you didn't lose it. If you chose to marry an unbeliever, either willfully out of disobedience or you got saved after the fact or they fooled you because you were so immature and you thought they were a believer or you didn't have a dad who was discerning enough to sort through those issues, what do you do? It's God's will for you to stick in that marriage. In fact, he says in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now the word sanctified can carry different nuances depending on the context. He's not saying that because the wife is saved and she's married to an unbeliever that he's now saved because the scripture is clear. No one gets saved for another person. But what God does see is that through the potentiality of that woman living a godly life, as 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 underscores, she can potentially have an influence on him so that she can bring him into the kingdom. Not to mention, God sees this as a bona fide marriage such that the children through the believer are set apart as holy. God views them as holy. It doesn't mean they're automatically saved. God has children, he has no grandchildren, but God can bless the children through that believer who loves the Lord, who's praying for those children, who are trying to nurture the hearts of those children. And so back here in our text, go back to Malachi. Malachi is dealing with the same issue that Paul is addressing, the treachery of an unequal yoke. And here in verse 10, he's reminding the people of their essential unity, of their distinct identity as the people of Israel. Do we not all have one father? Yes, we do. Is it not God who has created us? Yes, he created them as a nation. Why do you deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? That word profane is the Hebrew word kalal, and it means to destroy It means to deface something that is of value. And God made a covenant with Israel, and God makes a covenant when two people get married, as we'll see in just a moment. And they were profaning that covenant. They were despising that covenant in the same way that Esau despised his birthright. And they were doing that by marrying outside of the nation, unbelievers. Look at verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, we'll see how they profane the place of worship in a moment. But to marry an unbelieving, idolatrous Gentile, God calls an abomination. Now, I can tell you, wherever God uses the term abomination, if it was an abomination then, it was an abomination now. There are some things, some sins that are never mentioned in the New Testament. 
But the moral law of God, unlike the ceremonial law of God, is timeless. God nowhere speaks of a human being intimate with an animal, but it's still a sin. God calls it an abomination. And here he's using it in reference to a person dumping his younger wife for a newer model, and he marries a pagan. Look at it. As for the man who does this, that is the man who marries the daughter of a foreign god, They were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry these idolatrous Gentiles. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. To be cut off from the tents of Jacob refers to this covenantal blessings that God had promised the people of Israel. God never takes sin lightly. And these men who should have been driven by an unconditional love for their wives and for the Lord were driven by lust. That's the treachery of an unequal yoke. Let's go forward to the hypocrisy of unacceptable worship. And I think verse 12 will become clearer to you. The hypocrisy of unacceptable worship. I hope you know that all worship is not pleasing to the Lord. Please notice carefully the indictment that follows in verse 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing. Uh, The old NAS 95 says, with weeping and groaning. Because he no longer gives attention or he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from the Lord. Now remember, God made a covenant with Israel, and he spelled out the terms of that covenant. There are some covenants that are unconditional in nature. There are some promises that are unconditional in nature. There are some covenants and promises that are conditional, and the same is true in the New Testament. Let me highlight what he's dealing with here in Deuteronomy 28, when speaking of a conditional covenant. In 28.1, it says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But then in the same chapter, the opposite is spelled out in 28.15. But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Again, some of God's blessings are unconditional. There's things that God is going to do in your life no matter what. If you're born again, you have, a rem- you have the Spirit in you as a down payment, and someday He's going to raise you up. He's going to give you a resurrected body. He'll rapture you or take you out of the grave. That's going to happen. It has nothing to do with you. There are other promises that are conditioned on your obedience. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, then you can claim this promise. Well, here we just read in verse 12, as for the man who does this, that is the man who dumps his wife and marries a pagan, as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off, or you could render it as the 2020 edition say, may the Lord eliminate from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. It does not matter who you are, everyone who awakes and answers. The Net Bible paraphrases it, every last person who does this. The King James, using the Old English, tries to use an idiom from the 17th century to capture the Hebrew, which was understandable to them, the master and the scholar. The New King James, because people don't know what that means anymore, says the man who does this. 
The NAS is being most literal. It just says, everyone who awakes and answers, meaning anyone and everyone, whether it's the student or the master, the one who awakes, the one who answers, God is clear. Now look at verse 13. Your knowledge of the law does not mean that you're pleasing to the Lord if you're not obeying it. So he says in verse 13, he no longer gives attention. That is, he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, he's saying, you're messing out my place of worship. You came with all of this known rebelliousness in your heart. You're You're presenting these offerings, but you're unrepentant in your heart. And so he elaborates further in verse 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and sighing. Because he no longer gives attention to the offering or accepts it with favor from the Lord. These people were blubbering and crying and weeping and sighing and groaning. And God's not pleased with their offering. He says, it doesn't delight me. It doesn't impress me. God does not accept the hypocritical tears of these men who dump their wives and divorce them. God has not changed. This is why the New Testament speaks to the fact that a true believer can break fellowship with the living God. Your relationship with God is secure if you've genuinely been saved. And if you have been saved, then the direction of your life has changed. If the direction of your life hasn't changed, it typically means you've not been saved. The scripture never speaks of perfection. That won't happen until we get to heaven, but it speaks of a new direction. But nonetheless, a believer is capable of committing any kind of sin. And if you commit a sin as a believer, and we all do, we all sin in many ways, we all stumble in many ways. The one who says he doesn't sin is a liar, and he's calling God a liar, 1 John. You don't lose your relationship with God, but you lose your intimacy with God. And that's what 1 John 1 is addressing. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why He'll say in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's obviously not a salvation verse. He's not talking about how to get to heaven. He's talking about what you do once you are saved, It has everything to do with walking with the Lord. And of course, true confession, homologeo, means to say the same thing that God says about the sin. You own it. And we'll see in a moment, there are some people who have not owned their sin. And because of that, they've brought a cloud on their home and on their marriage. But we own our sin. We say what God says about it. And he is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just like these people in Malachi's day, it doesn't matter how religious you are. If your heart is out of sync with the Lord, he's displeased. So you can blubber and weep, or as he says here, cover the altar of the Lord with tears, but God's not impressed if your heart is resistant to his will. Now notice verse 14. God views the tears of each man who does this, who'd abandoned the wife of their youth with a great sense of disdain as hypocritical. And they say, you're not talking about me, are you, Lord? Look at it. Yet you say, for what reason? These people are so spiritually insensitive. You you don't mean me, Lord. And so God spells it out. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, Though she is your companion 
and your wife by covenant. When the marriage covenant was enacted, every Jew called upon the Lord to witness that covenant. And we basically still do the same in one way or another. People often want to find a preacher or a church or some formalized way, and even if they don't have a preacher, typically the ceremony will begin, dearly beloved, we're assembled here in the presence of God Almighty and these people to unite so-and-so in holy matrimony. They know God has something to do with it, and they're calling God to witness it, and that's what marriage is. It's a covenant between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. The core phrase here, you should underline it, your wife by covenant. Because there are some people who have rationalized what marriage is. There was a young man here years ago, and he came to me and said, Pastor, I'd like you to marry me, but I do have one thing that you need to know. I said, what's that one thing? He said, I don't think man has anything to do with marriage, that God joins two people. I said, I agree with that. He said, so I'm not going to get a marriage license. I said, well, I'm not going to marry you. God calls us to submit to kings and those who are in authority. Look, all across Western Europe, only 3% of the people even go to church anymore. No wonder the Antichrist will come out of a coalition of 10 nations, an 11th that will raise its ugly head from which he will come. It's a pagan part of the world today. But even those so-called pagans... When they get married, if they want to be legally married, they have to go and they'll go to some office and they'll sign a form and she'll sign a form. It's still a public declaration that we are going to be married. And sometimes I've met people over the years who come and I say, now, just make it clear to me here, I see you both have visitor cards that you fill out, but you have the same address and two last names. Are you just going by your... No, we we live together, but, but we consider ourselves married. I said, well, God doesn't consider you married. Marriage is a public covenant, a proclamation that God gives witness to. Some 40 years ago, I was leading a Bible study at Duke University where I was a campus pastor, and we were studying the subject of sexual immorality. When we're in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, let me read it to you. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. And Paul's argument is is that if you are a believer and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and you have a sexually immoral relationship with a person, you're dragging God the Holy Spirit into sin with you. And so one of the students in the Bible said, now, Carly, if two people become one, even in this kind of an immoral relationship, does that mean they are married? I thought, you know, that was a really good question. I had to think for a second, and God brought back to my mind Malachi 2. No, because marriage is a covenant. Again, at the end of verse 14, she is your companion by covenant. When you got married, you made a covenantal agreement to be a a companion with one another, or your marriage partner, as some translations render it. And I say that it's public Because the scripture is clear that a man leaves his father and mother. There's a leaving and there's a public cleaving, a public joining that takes place. And so the point here is that marriage defined biblically is a covenant. 
And for this reason, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' point is that marriage is not man's covenant to break because God makes the covenant. It's a divine covenant. And when you make those vows, you are saying before God Almighty, I will before you, Lord. And so a problem comes, and who do we go to? Do we go to the living God? No, we go to a judge somewhere. We say, judge, you know, we have irreconcilable differences, and we can't seem to agree with one another. The judge stamps some certificate, and he says, here, divorce granted, And God holds up his marriage license in heaven, and he says, no, divorce is not granted, because only death can sever the relationship. For this reason, Jesus said, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. You say, what about the exception clause? There's no exception clause in Luke. There's no exception clause in Mark. There's no exception clause in Romans. There's no exception clause in 1 Corinthians 7. Why is there one in Matthew? Because Jews practice betrothal. When you were betrothed, you were considered husband and wife, though you had had no relationship typically for a one-year period of time. And if during the betrothal period, Joseph is called the husband of Mary, finds out she's pregnant, what is he going to do? He's going to put her away, divorce her, being a righteous man, wanting to obey the law. But the Spirit of God speaks to him in a dream and says, no, this conception is supernatural. They were only betrothed. It's much different from engagement. It was so tight. You had to get a certificate of divorce to break it. That's what the exception clause applied to, and only to Jews. There is no such exception today. And for 1,600 years, that was the only position amongst born-again scholars and Christians. There was no other position. The idea that it applied to adultery after marriage was brought up by a man named Erasmus, who, who is a hardcore unbeliever who fought Martin Luther over justification by grace alone through faith alone. But that's the view most folks take today. And even if they took just that view, most second marriages wouldn't happen. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. It's adultery. Because only God can break the marriage contract. You said, until death do us part. And God said, amen, I agree. That's why Paul says this in Romans 7. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. Now, maybe you weren't thinking about God when you made those vows, You were just looking into her eyes, and she was looking into your eyes and said, oh, yes, I want to marry you. And you weren't thinking about covenant. But God was thinking about covenant. And while you had honeymoon in your eyes, God had covenant in his eyes. But unfortunately, today, so many marriages, they don't consult the authority anymore. They don't even care what God thinks anymore. And they don't even think that God has anything to do with it. But Jesus said, what God has joined together, 
let no man separate, which forces us to ask a critical question. Does it mean if you are divorced and remarried that you are in a permanent state of adultery? Well, it all depends. Now, remember, I didn't say this. Your argument is not with me. Jesus said whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So how do you deal with these plain statements? A couple came to me and said, this is our second marriage. We realized that we violated what God said, and we were thinking, he was primarily, of divorcing his second wife to go back to his first wife. He said, is that something we should do? I said, absolutely not. Why? Because God forbids it. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. God calls it an abomination. If you divorce your wife, you marry a second wife, you decide you're tired of her or whatever it is, and you want to go back to your first wife, God says it's an abomination. Why? Because it becomes a legal form to commit adultery. So let me just say, whatever marriage you're on, it used to be, you know, some people would come to the church, and oh, we're in a second marriage. Now I'm in second, third, fourth, fifth. Whatever marriage you're on, it is the will of God for your life. You can't unscramble eggs. However, if you do not honestly, biblically deal with your sin, I don't care if you were saved or lost when you did it, because marriage is not simply a Christian institution. It's an institution for man then there can be a cloud over your second marriage. God can forgive. God can cleanse. But if we don't deal with it, if we make excuses, my ex this, my ex that, you are actually contributing to the downfall of other marriages. And let me underscore in your thinking what Jesus said in Matthew 3, 28. All sins, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. Now, I know the way a fallen mind can reason. We can say, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to dump this guy since God can forgive all sin. I'll marry this next guy, and hopefully it will be better. That's like a woman saying, well, God forgave me of an abortion, the murder of a little baby. And sometimes men are involved in that murder. I guess I'm pregnant again. I don't want to be. I can just do it again, and God will forgive me. You don't presume on the grace of God. And if you're reasoning that way in your marriage, it just shows how far away, how hard, how broken your relationship is with the Lord. And the people in Malachi, they had reasoned much like that. They came, second woman, all their tears, blubbering, crying. Here, Lord, we're here to worship you. And God was disgusted with it. And let me just say parenthetically, you may have never had a divorce, but if you're not dealing with your wife honestly, kindly, if you're dealing with her treacherously, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is saying, you're mistreating your wife. Get up off your knees and go fix it. And the shoe could be on the other foot, as he'll go on to say. And that's what Malachi is saying. You're here blubbering in God's holy sanctuary like you're worshiping the living God. 
and you're dealing treacherously with your bride. Now, quickly and finally, beyond the treachery of an unequal yoke and the hypocrisy of unacceptable worship, third and finally, he deals with the violence of an unkept vow. The violence of an unkept vow. Look now at verse 15. And I need to tell you verse 15 is probably the most difficult verse in the whole book of Malachi to translate, such that the NASB 2020 reads a little different from the 95, which is slightly different from the 1901. Now, as I read it and studied it in the Hebrew Bible, it was real clear to me. But I could see how it was a challenge to translate. And that's the goal of translation, is to make it understandable. So let me read from the most literal, the harder to understand, 1995 edition that I read in our introduction. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, there's not a single man who's dumping his first wife to marry these pagans out of lust. Not one of them were doing that in ignorance. They had a remnant of the Spirit. They knew better. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now let's walk through the first part of verse 15 again. But not one has done so, again, dumped his wife, who has a remnant of the spirit. God's spirit worked in the Old Testament. Unlike the new covenant believer where we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, The Spirit of God still worked, and so they knew the difference between right and wrong. So none of them were doing this in the total dark. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Let me uh, go to the marginal reading. If you have the NASB 95, you look out in the margin. And by the way, this would be a good time to maybe just review marginal notes. Sometimes in the margin it will say, or meaning you could translate the Hebrew either this way or this way, or the Greek if it's a marginal note concerning the Greek. Both are right. There's not a single word maybe that will capture it. Or sometimes you won't see or, you'll see L-I-T, which means literally. Okay, so if you're reading from the margin, let me read it to you. Did he not make one, although he had the remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He sought a godly seed or offspring. Now, that's kind of wooden, and it's difficult to understand, but that's most literal. Now, without boring you with a lesson on Hebrew, let me read the 2020. The 2020 takes the marginal reading and puts it in the newer edition, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And why the one? He was seeking a godly remnant. Why did God want you to stay together as one? Because he wants a godly seed. He wants a godly remnant. The New King James slightly paraphrases it, but, he did, not, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks a godly offspring. Here's the point. Don't get lost in the translation. All the way back to Genesis, Malachi is taking us just like Jesus does when he's questioned by the Pharisees on divorce. Don't you know what the scripture says? A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The two shall become one. And that's why for many people, death is easier to deal with than a divorce. Because as we'll see here in a moment, it is in God's eyes, two people that he has glued together to tear them apart is a violent act, and it does damage to the children. And why one? 
He sought a godly offspring or seed. That's one of the purposes for marriage. Not just companionship, as Andy Stanley said last week. Well, you know, these gay couples, they need companionship. God also wants procreation. He wants a godly offspring, something they can pull off. And God knows that when you break a home through divorce, the opportunity for a godly offspring is greatly typically diminished. The psalmist said in 127.4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Arrows were used in Bible days like guns are today to rule over the enemy. The psalmist is saying your godly offspring can be used of God to rule over our enemy, the evil one. The sad thing today is the Muslim world, they're the ones who are having all the kids. And they're not crafting arrows for godliness. They're crafting arrows for terrorism. And what vain, wicked, heinous things they've done. And people are denying, oh, you're making this up. They're not making it up. When God saw what the Amalekites did when they were wandering through the desert on their way to the land of promise and they attacked innocent women and children when they get into the promised land, God had not forgotten. You take them out. In Nahum's day, when the Ninevites had repented of their parents' repentance, two generations later, a hundred years later, They did the most vile, wicked things that these men are doing today in Israel. And they not only did them, they bragged about them. They wrote about it in their cuneiforms. Just like these people are doing with modern technology. Now listen, God wants you and me to raise a godly heritage. You know what my most important job in my mind? It's not to be a good pastor. It's to be a good father. One of these days, I won't be here. And it'll be a short throw where someone will say, well, what was the previous? They won't even remember my name. I want to be a good dad. That's the most important thing. And godly children the opportunity for it are greatly diminished when divorce comes in. It's not impossible, but it's greatly diminished, which is why the exhortation in verse 15, take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. He builds a case against divorce by going back to the creation account, to the oneness that Jesus also underscored. And your most powerful asset in raising a godly Heritage is being one with your wife. If you're in a battleship all the time with your wife, that's not a place your kids are going to enjoy. They're not going to want to be home. They're going to be down the street being influenced by pagan lost kids. Faithfulness to the marriage covenant, a stable environment, is what God uses to raise a godly heritage. And kids like that, they want to come back. They want to be there. They love each other. And so God links a godly offspring to oneness. And he knows violence, the violence divorce brings. Look at verse 16. It's linked to verse 15 with that little word for. You should circle it. It's causal. It could mean in other words or because. For I hate divorce. 
says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, the old NAS says, who covers his garment with wrong, and the margin either is correct, it's not just a wrong, but it's a violent wrong, both are correct, so you have to choose one if you're going word for word, He who covers his his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts, so be careful about your spirit and do not deal treacherously. He begins by saying, I hate divorce. Now that was hard to swallow in Malachi's day because many of the ancient people wanted to do what the pagan neighbors did. And that's why God cautioned them over and over and over again about their association with lost people and the influence they could have. And there was a a series of paraphrases called Targums that were written. And in the Targums, it actually, being a commentary on this verse, it read, if you hate her, divorce her. Well, that's convenient. If you hate her, divorce her. And there's a Slavic translation when I've been in Ukraine and some are using the Russian Bible. The Russian Bible says, if you hate her, divorce her. The Hebrew text does not say that. It's going with a paraphrase and maybe some Russian translator didn't like his wife. And so he rewrote the text with some commentary. The Hebrew says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce And so the Targums were never to be written into the body of text, and most Jews would never do that. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were embracing the Targums more than they were the word of God, and Jesus said, you're neglecting the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. God is clear. I hate divorce. Now, why does he hate divorce? He gives different reasons. Notice, first... Because it violates a covenant that he witnessed. You made a covenant before me. You're blowing it off. Second, because it's a form of treachery. It's a form of cruelty to one another. Third, it damages the children. It hinders your ability to raise a godly seed. And fourth, it's a violent act. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts, so be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. One of the men who taught me Greek who was involved in the Lexham translation rendered it this way with that team of translators. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he who covers his clothing with violence, says Yahweh of hosts, you must be attentive to your spirit. You must not be unfaithful. Metaphorically in scripture, a person's clothing can be associated with his person, even in the New Testament. Or in Proverbs, a seductive dressed woman communicates a seductive heart versus a woman who dresses carefully so as not to be sensual communicates a different spirit. Even so, a Jewish man could symbolize his love for his wife by his garment. And so Boaz literally put a garment of love over one. And here what they were doing, they were taking their garment of violence. In essence, they were putting it over their wives. God hated it. And he still hates it. And to underscore it twice over says the Lord of hosts. Now, how can we apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, every person should guard his spirit. 
Every person should guard his spirit. Twice over in verse 15, then verse 16, he says, take heed to your spirit. Why? Because God knows out of your heart flows the issues of life, the springs of life. Most people who get into serious marital problems, they fail to pay attention to their heart, to their spirit. They don't heed this counsel. They'll go home tonight. Some will fill their hearts with sensuality after hearing sermons all across America. They'll go home, they'll watch some dirty movie. They'll listen to ungodly sensual music. And when you have a problem with sensuality, I can promise you, you'll have a problem with anger. You'll have a problem with lust and a host of other issues. And I'm speaking directly here to the men because Malachi speaks directly to the men, as does Jesus. And I would say, having been in the ministry since 1978, most of the marriage problems are typically, sadly, sourced in the man. Everyone who divorces his wife, Jesus says. And here he is addressing the men who divorce their Jewish wives to marry a foreigner. Men who are driven not by love, but by lust. That's how it happens. A guy thinks, I can watch this movie. It's fine. I can listen to this song. It won't affect me. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll reap. And they have ignored the counsel of God, and they pay a tremendous price because it's just a matter of time before it catches up. Secondly, face your sin honestly with true repentance. To those of you who've disobediently entered into marriage with an unbeliever, or maybe you divorced your spouse and you remarried, don't rationalize. Deal with it honestly. And let me say to those who have a tainted view of those who have been divorced, remember what God has called clean. No man is to be called, no one is to call them unclean. By the grace of God, I have never been divorced. And a pastor can't be divorced, nor a deacon to serve in either of those offices. Not because God's down and dumping on divorced people. Because God is trying to protect marriage and to model it through the leadership of the church. And a divorced man can serve in any capacity in the church except the office of elder or deacon. It doesn't mean they are unclean. What God has called clean, let no man call unclean. You don't look down your nose on someone but by God's grace, there go I. I deserve to go to hell. By God's grace, I'm going to heaven. And this is a dangerous precipice in our culture especially. So we have to teach what the Bible says. We have to build high walls so people don't fall over the precipice. But we also have to have an ambulance at the bottom for those who have to help them to find forgiveness and healing and the mercy of God. Third and finally, troubled marriages are not healed overnight. You can start and make a decision overnight, but it takes time. You didn't get into your troubled marriage in a moment. And people call me sometimes late at night. We got a problem. A guy knocked on my door at 10 o'clock at night. Now I was glad for that guy to show up because I've been trying to win him to Christ for a decade. 
But, you know, people call. I say, well, I'll talk to you next week. Let me just give you some counsel. I'll pray with you. Oh, pastor, I need to come right now. You didn't get into this problem tonight. This has been a long time in coming, and I can't fix it in one night. And if I tried to fix everything people want, would want me to fix, I'd be in the heart attack category of most pastors. But I can promise you, if you will look to the Lord and you will obey the Lord in the right direction for a long period of time, however troubled a marriage is, God can heal it and he can save it. And your home ought to be a refuge where family members come. It's a place they enjoy and when they grow and they leave your home, they still want to come back. But if you want to have a Christian home, you have to be a Christian. And if you've never received Jesus, he wants to save you today. You can call upon him and he'll forgive you and cleanse you and give you new life. Now, our Father, I thank you for the time we've had in your word today. And I know because I've done this long enough, as you've revealed to me, some people in their minds are fighting with me today. But I pray that they would search the scriptures for themselves to see if these things be true. I thank you for your incredible grace that you are wanting to forgive, that all manner of sin can be forgiven, that you can call us clean and holy, dub us children of God, set your eternal affection upon us, and how grateful we are for that. I pray for the young men and women who are listening to this message, wherever they may be, that they would only marry in the Lord another committed believer. Help them not to be buffaloed or fooled out of emotion, but help them to make good decisions. For those homes that are here today, they've never been broken by divorce, but they're not all that happy. Thank you, our Father, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I pray you'd bring many of them on Wednesday night because of the message that I'll be preaching. And for those who have been broken by divorce, thank you that at Golgotha you saw every stain and blot of sin we would ever commit. That Lord Jesus, in your own body on the cross, you bore it. That once for all time you paid for our sin. That if we would call upon you in faith, you would credit us with your righteousness, place the spirit within us, and someday take us to heaven. And for that, we're grateful. And for that, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Maybe there's a decision you need to make this morning. You might be in Graniteville. You might be in Grace. You know you need a church that you can join. Every believer does. Or maybe you've received Christ and you've never taken the first step of making that public through New Testament baptism. I want to invite you, if you have a decision like that, to step out and meet me here in the front as we sing.